Okay, so let's be real for a moment. Have you found yourself drinking more alcohol during the pandemic? I know I have. But with summer coming up, I also want to get in shape for all of my favorite activities. Hiking, rock climbing, kayaking. So recently, when I've been in the mood for a beer, I've been going for the non-alcoholic variety. One of our sponsors for this episode is a company called Athletic Brewing. They make non-alcoholic craft brews geared toward modern, active adults. I have to admit, when I first heard about these non-alcoholic beers, I was a little skeptical. But they actually taste really good. If I didn't know they were non-alcoholic, I would have no idea. For 20% off your order of non-alcoholic beer, go to athleticbrewing.com and enter the promo code OUTTHERE20 at checkout. That's athleticbrewing.com, promo code OUTTHERE20. Hi, I'm Willow Belden, and you're listening to Out There, the podcast that explores big questions through intimate stories outdoors. Before we get started with our story today, I have a quick announcement. We are now accepting applications for our summer production internship. The internship is a chance to work one-on-one with me and learn about all aspects of podcast production, from evaluating pitches, to editing scripts, to doing sound design, to producing a story of your own. It's a wonderful learning experience, and thanks to generous contributions from our listeners, we're also able to offer a small stipend for our interns. You can find more information about the internship at our website, outtherepodcast.com, and the deadline to apply is April 30th. When someone asks, how are you, what do you usually say? Probably some version of, I'm fine, right? But what about this year? Most of us haven't been fine. Maybe you or a loved one has gotten a really terrible case of COVID. Maybe you've lost someone. Maybe your work has dried up and you haven't been able to get a new job. Or maybe the problems are more subtle than that. I've been comparatively lucky. I already worked from home, I don't have kids, and I live in a place where it's easy to get outside and not be around a lot of people. But that doesn't mean I've been fine. This year has been really tough emotionally. So when people ask, how are you? I don't know what to say. All of this has gotten me thinking a lot about the right to complain. My year has been hard, but I have it so good compared to so many people. So does that mean I should shut up about my problems? Today's story is about that very question, but from a different perspective. It's a story that first ran several years ago, but which feels surprisingly relevant again now. So I'd like to share it with you today. The story comes to us from an Australian journalist named James Bennett. He moved to India several years ago to be a foreign correspondent. Covering South Asia had been his dream for a long time. But actually living in New Delhi 
turned out to be extremely taxing. James is an outdoorsy guy. He's the kind of person who loves to go cycling and surfing and fishing. And so he knew that living in India's crowded capital was going to be hard. What he didn't realize was how the experience would change his perspective on speaking up about your problems. I'll let James take it from here. Testing, testing one, two, three. Okay, it's um, November 7, 2017. Um, (coughs) I feel pretty rough. I'm sitting in my New Delhi house with three air purifiers running. I've just come back from a garden party, which should have been a great day out. But, yeah, after spending the morning outside in this smog... My, my throat is, is dry and, and scratchy um, and there's a, a kind of metallic tang that's stuck there in the back of my throat that just, it, it won't go away no matter how much water I drink. And I have a headache and one that's sadly not from too much booze. Um, I've only got a couple of months left here and yeah, unfortunately at the moment I just I can't wait to be gone. It's not the way I wanted to feel about place that's uh, that's been pretty amazing for a lot of reasons but um, right now I just don't want to be here At this point I'd been in India for over two years The air was always bad but never like this It turned out there was good reason it was affecting me so much that day New Delhi's air quality index was quite literally off the scale, twice over. The way the Air Quality Index, or AQI for short, works is zero is perfect, while anything above 300 is extreme, super hazardous, do not go outside. The scale tops out at 500. New Delhi, on November 7 last year, was 1,010, quite literally off the dial, twice over. It was a really horrible, claustrophobic feeling. I've never felt quite so trapped in the relative sanctuary of my home. There, the air purifiers fought valiantly to scrub the air that most Deliites breathe constantly, without choice. Except I was living in New Delhi by choice. In 2015, I'd received a phone call that I'd long dreamed of. Congratulations, Delhi's yours, I was told. After a decade of reporting from towns and cities across Australia, working my way through the ranks, I'd finally done it. After many attempts, I'd landed my dream job, a long-coveted foreign correspondent posting, meaning I'd be swapping my suit and studio for South Asia and shirt sleeves. It was an exhilarating feeling. At the culmination of many years' hard work, I was finally going to realise a long-held aspiration and it felt like a dream. As I rode my bicycle home from work that evening, safe in a designated bike lane along a wide, relatively quiet boulevard, I contemplated the looming change. I was covering federal politics at the time, working in Australia's parliament in Canberra. Canberra is often derided as a sleepy bush capital, but to me, having vast open expanses just minutes from the city was perfect. 
the blend of intellectual stimulation and outdoor escapism simultaneously stoked my inner nerd and outer restlessness. I could do hard group rides on the road or mountain bike along a series of trails to and from work, coast my bike right into the parliamentary basement and minutes later be engrossed in the cut and thrust of political debate. Some days I'd drive to work, car carefully packed with mountain bike, fishing rod and camping gear. Then work day done, I'd split straight to the northern snowy mountains. The snowy mountains aren't tall in stature, but the rolling blue-green ranges are nonetheless majestic. Colloquially called the high country, the area is steeped in Australian history and folklore. Wild horses roam the plains in packs, trout-filled streams snake their way out of the steepest gorges. I could be live on TV in the morning, and by late afternoon, all alone on a remote river, fly rod in hand, watching a sunset. I adored the sense of freedom. A month or so later, landing in Delhi, the comparison was jarring. The pace of life is immediately different. Passengers unbuckle seatbelts the moment the plane's wheels jolt onto the tarmac. You know how attendants tell you to stay seated and buckled? Yeah, people don't do that in India. The instant the aircraft halts, everyone jumps up immediately to snatch their luggage and cram the aisles for exit, like there's a medal for getting off the plane first. I hastily gather my things and begin the process of adjusting to life in a land of a billion people. I'll never forget the smiling, excited face of the ABC's driver and my soon-to-be indispensable guide, Amit, jostling through the crowd to be seen as I emerged. Welcome, Sergi, he said, addressing me in a curious amalgamation of honorifics from both English and Hindi. It was Sir plus G, meaning respected in Hindi. Sergi. Amit took the cart bearing my luggage and gear and together we made our way out of the airport and into the throng. Having worked previously for diplomats, Ahmet was accustomed to welcoming wide-eyed foreigners and he could see what I was processing. Things in India, little different, Sergi, he said with a grin, catching me ogling the chaotic jumble of taxis, carts, passengers and luggage. Inching our way into the hectic city, even late at night, I was captivated by the sheer number of people. Tens of millions of humans scurrying, struggling, striving to make their way in life. A middle-aged man pushed a heavy cargo of steel reinforcing bars in a tricycle cart against the traffic, which seemed to taunt him with ceaseless honking. Gaunt, he laboured with his head bowed, seemingly in deference to his lowly status on the road and in life. The human footprint in Delhi is a heavy one, Traffic, noise, dust, rubbish. In the early weeks, as I came to grips with my new job and the vastly different surroundings, everything I'd known and worried about at home in Australia seemed to be suddenly, absurdly, trivial. I'd look at the smouldering garbage mountains, the belch of black smoke from an overloaded truck or someone defecating in the open, and just feel sad. As Ahmet took me to interviews and meetings, 
I'd stare out the window from the relative sanctity of our vehicle at whole families living under traffic bridges or in makeshift huts. Often, at the traffic lights, the children would tap a fingernail on the car window to beg. The sharp rapping sound pierced the veil of separation between my world of privilege and comfort and theirs of deprivation and hardship. By late October, the flicker of small fires began to punctuate Delhi's evening gloom. Illuminated by the flames were the forlorn faces of the families living under the bridges or on the median strips. Their meagre heating was fuelled with whatever they could scavenge from the rubbish piles. Wood, paper, cloth, even plastic. In contrast, I was seeing friends' Facebook posts from back home, discussing issues which suddenly seemed outrageously trivial or self-indulgent. One criticised the apparent neglect of Melbourne's public transport system, which, sure, just like New York subway today, I guess, certainly has its issues, but as I stared agog at an intersection choked with a multi-directional mash-up of cars, motorcycles, bicycles, rickshaws and people, it just seemed like nitpicking. Another post decried moves to limit Australia's paid maternity leave. Paid maternity leave is an important part of Australia's social and economic fabric, but I was struggling to reconcile middle-class anger with watching homeless mothers beg on street corners with babies in their arms. I felt like taking a photo and posting it as a comment, complete with a shouty all-caps caption, Don't you have any idea how spoilt we are? How much we have to be thankful for? It's around this time, the end of October, when Delhi's smog worsens in earnest. It gets so bad, the city outchokes even Beijing. The toxic cocktail is a mix of crop stubble smoke from surrounding farms, power station emissions, the fumes from millions of trucks, cars and bikes, the vehicle's dust, and even the smoke from the things poor people burnt to keep warm. It all hangs in the very air everyone myself included, had no choice but to inhale. I distinctly recall the day it really hit me, the day I realised that this choice, my choice, the opportunity that I'd fought so hard for, could really hurt me. That morning I'd ventured out for a brief run, half an hour of breathing the sickly smoky air and I came home feeling really ill. My breathing felt constricted by a tightness in my chest that I'd never felt before. It was scary. And if I'm actually honest, I wasn't really worried by the risk of cancer or emphysema. I was stressing out about my sporting ability. As a passionate bike rider, my lungs mean everything to me. What was I doing to myself? Was I doing permanent damage to my treasured aerobic capacity, or for the glory of calling myself a foreign correspondent? Was it worth it? Other expats began wearing face masks, earning them quizzical looks, even smirks, from the largely nonchalant Indians. I began researching the masks intently. Which ones fit people's faces the closest? Which had the best filters, valves, flow rate? I put the very best one I could find on my work credit card, Surely the finance people wouldn't quibble with me spending the money on protection, would they? 
Some of my Delhi friends opted for black humour, quipping about transferring to Beijing in the hope of fresher air. Inwardly, I began to feel a bit lost. My earlier enthusiasm and conviction that the upsides outweighed the lifestyle sacrifice began to evaporate. I would scroll mindlessly through the message threads of cycling friends back home. The banal back and forth, dissecting races, moments on group rides, or organising times and places to meet up, never considering air quality, it would all sometimes drive me nuts. I'd stare at my beautiful racing bike and long for the crisp early morning quiet of Canberra's roads and the solace of a solo ride devoid of heat, horns and endless traffic. The gulf between my expectation of what India and Delhi would be like and the reality of not just visiting but actually living in the city was turning out to be vast. The funny thing was, though, rationally, I'd actually anticipated this. The correspondent who preceded me in the posting was a good friend, and I knew from our conversations how much she'd struggled with aspects of the cloistered lifestyle, particularly as a blonde female runner in a city, sadly, synonymous with ghastly sexual assaults. But what I hadn't known, what I had no way of knowing, was how I'd react to it all. Hey, it's Willow. We'll hear the rest of James's story in a moment. But first... It all starts with the simple idea that camping is fun and awesome, but finding a campsite is a big pain in the rear. That's Mark Kep. He's the founder of Campground Views. Campground Views is one of our sponsors for this episode. They're on a mission to make it easier to find the perfect campsite for every trip. The way they're doing that is by providing 360-degree photos and videos of campsites on public lands all over the country. It'll be like a Google Street View trip to the campground, except a little bit better, because it'll be a video that's in 360. So you'll be able to go down the roads to the campground and then grab the screen like you do on Google Street View and look left, right, up, or down, and all around. To sign up for Campground Views and become a member, go to campgroundviews.com. That's campgroundviews.com. Support for Out There also comes from BetterHelp. BetterHelp provides professional online counseling to clients all over the world. They have specialists in all sorts of areas, from depression and anxiety to LGBTQ matters to grief and trauma. When you sign up, they'll ask you a series of questions to match you with a therapist who can meet your specific needs. You can meet with your therapist via video chat, phone, or even text. In the event that your therapist isn't a good fit, you can always switch to a new counselor. If there's something that's interfering with your happiness or preventing you from meeting your goals, get the support you need. For 10% off your first month of counseling, go to betterhelp.com slash out there. That's betterhelp.com slash out there. And now, back to the story. I'd convinced myself before I came that the sacrifices, giving up friends, freedom to ride and fresh air, would all be bearable. The places to explore, the professional challenge, and the opportunity to learn made it all worthwhile reasoned. Imagine trekking up into the Himalayas and finding stories about the lives of people living in these remote and contested regions, I'd thought to myself. 
Sri Lanka, Nepal, Pakistan, Afghanistan, all these wonderful, wild and dangerous places were soon to become my domain. This was an adventure-seeking foreign reporter's dream. And honestly, it was amazing. For one story, I even got to go backcountry skiing in Afghanistan. Who gets paid to do that? But the problem, I've since realised, was my own double standards. I'd found myself wanting to criticise friends back home for being absorbed in what we flippantly term first world problems. But at the same time, I wanted pity for my situation, the situation I'd willingly signed up for. I recall one moment in particular, pretty recently actually, where I felt really silly. It was one day late last year, not long after the really bad smog day in November. My producer and I had stopped for lunch at one of my favourite street stalls, one which served fantastic chickpea curry. As we ate, I felt a familiar tapping on my elbow. I knew what it was. Initially, I fought the urge to turn around. Don't react, don't engage, people tell you. The begging, it's all just a scam, they say. But I did look. There, staring up at me was a boy of perhaps 10, dishevelled, dirty, barefoot. Having captured my attention, he repeats a pitiful request for bread. Chapati, chapati, please, Mr. Chapati, he insisted, while mimicking a hand-to-mouth action. Is it a scam? I wondered to myself. If so, why ask for bread and not money? My producer shooed the boy away. The disparity struck me hard. Here I was, obsessing about my lungs, while this boy begs for survival on an empty stomach. At that particular moment, the thought occurred to me far more profoundly than it had previously. Is the environment a luxury item? And I think both of us feel very strongly about it. I mean, we don't, um, we're very outdoorsy people ourselves. I'd like to introduce you to an Indian couple, my friends, Priti Singh and Gautam Chima. And we met you on the famous... Uh... Latian's Delhi circuit. These two are part of a small but dedicated cycling community in Delhi. Gautam has played a huge role in encouraging it. He organises mountain biking races on the city's outskirts and spends hours trawling Google Maps for quieter roads suitable for cycling. But Gautam also has taken to doing something else, a little more controversial. Every day he takes his own measurement of the air quality using a simple, commercially available device shaped a little bit like an egg. He simply snaps a photo of the AQI readout and posts it on Facebook, showing his friends what they're breathing. It's a practice which it turns out has generated some surprising blowback. The conversation is that you're a uh, fanatic and you're making a panic. You're fear-mongering. You're fear-mongering, that's, <laughs> that's the correct that's word. They say. You're a fear-monger and you're creating a panic. And stop it. So I asked him, why do it? I think the, the correct point of view of any problem is to look at the data and then, then raise concerns. And if the data says that there's no problem, then you know it's fear-mongering. When the data is saying that, you know, something off, then you need to take it seriously and then you need to let everyone know that it's something serious. Because otherwise, who's got the time in this day and age to look at data? It's the most boring thing, right? 
but you love it. I love it. It's my problem. <laughs> but Gotham's nerdy joke about no one having the time or the interest, it really goes to the very heart of this issue. Because this apocalyptic air, funny as it might seem, it just isn't really a big deal for most people. And this completely confounded me, personally and professionally. The smirks at foreigners wearing masks. They're because many Deliites still believe that, having grown up in this smog, they're somehow inured to it, that their bodies have learned to cope with it, as if they were coping with the heat. But what we are now is in complete classic denial. It seemed clear to me that this was a big deal, breathing in spectacularly toxic air every day. And no one was doing anything about it. But at the same time, I was conflicted about what to do and what to say. I kept asking myself, as I ran my air purifiers on coal-fired electricity, am I really in a position to throw stones here? I asked Gotham what he thought about me, a citizen of a first world country with a fossil fuel economy, criticising developing India for not prioritising the pollution problem. To my surprise, he encouraged the criticism. If sitting here on our armchair we can criticise the rest of the world, why can't the rest of the world criticise us? Who, where is this written or unwritten rule that dictates that criticism is only one way? I mean, anyone, I mean, if it's something wrong, you've got to say that this is wrong, right? So civilization means you have value for human life. Right now, we have no value for anyone's lives. That day, where the AQI hit 1,010, that did make the headlines. India's shame, screamed one channel. The city's chief minister even described Delhi as a gas chamber. I stared despairingly at my lovely carbon road bike. Peering outside into the yellowy air was like looking at one of those retro sepia-toned photographs. There was no way I was venturing out, even with a mask. But, and this is the double standards thing, right? While I'd resigned myself to the monotony of indoor exercise, I hadn't exactly been suffering in silence. I'd been complaining to anyone who'd listen. But it wasn't until one conversation with my sister that I realised there was something bigger here. How have you been? Um, all right. This is my sister, Ella. She lives in New York. When people she meets ask how she likes it, she'll admit she sometimes struggles with aspects of big city living, comparing it to the small town we grew up in. Obviously, New York is dirtier, noisier and far more crowded. This played out one day when we basically had a text message argument over which one of us had the right to complain. See, during a visit home, I'd sent her a message marvelling about how good it was to be back in Australia. She replied with a withering, witty critique of New York life, crafted kind of like as if it were a tourist brochure. You want dappled sun mixed with a firm polluted breeze. She went on to complain about the unhealthy food, the bad coffee served in cheap styrofoam cups. You can shovel this in your mouth as you jostle for a spot on the D-train, which is a tube of hovering farts at all times. In response, I kind of lost it. I went into mansplaining mode and told her she didn't know pollution at all. The way I saw it was, what could you possibly be worried about in New York? 
Surely it can't be anywhere near as bad as what I put up with. But my sister puts the flip side, oh so eloquently. You know, you never comfort somebody who's lost a father by saying, well, my mum and dad are dead. (laughs) Um, That's a horrible but rather effective analogy. What ultimately our debate boiled down to was a simple question. If you've got a problem, but someone else is worse off, does that mean you shouldn't complain? Just put your head down, shut up and be grateful it isn't worse? It was something we ended up discussing a fair bit. I think the line of yours that really got me was you saying, beware of shifting baselines. Yes. I um, I actually looked into this. Shifting baseline syndrome was first um, coined by a fisheries biologist called Daniel Pauly. And he was talking about um, a scientist that accept that whatever the state of fish stocks at the time um, that they begin their careers is what they accept as as kind of normal and 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 the correct size, and so they are evaluating the changes only from the beginning of their time rather than from the from when you know they were perhaps untouched by humans at all. So uh, that could easily be a misrepresentation if the zero point effectively is a point of decline already. Right. You don't have a good reference point for evaluating the loss because you're only starting it at a, at a midway point. After Ella pointed this out, I thought, yeah. I mean, imagine if a local factory began flouting pollution controls. Or like in California last year, there was smoke from fires and authorities just told people to shut up and consider themselves lucky they didn't live in Delhi. And then it dawned on me how many issues this argument applies to. I undertook numerous assignments to the Myanmar-Bangladesh border late last year, as vast numbers of Rohingya Muslims fled a vicious crackdown by Myanmar's military. On one of these trips, in a crowded refugee camp in Bangladesh, I was humbled to meet and speak with a number of Rohingya women who had been raped, often violently, by soldiers from Myanmar's army. Bearing witness was important, but listening to them, these brave young women and girls detailed the awful, unspeakable things that had been done to them. It was hard. As I wrote my story in a hotel, cable news flashed up the latest on the emerging Harvey Weinstein story, the Me Too movement, and push against workplace sexual harassment. I stared and thought, can you compare gang rape at gunpoint to the way Weinstein and others acted? I realised that applying my argument, you shouldn't complain because others have it worse, was just plain wrong. Imagine saying that victims in the entertainment or media industries shouldn't speak up just because their aggressors hadn't subjected them to the same depravity the Rohingya suffered at the hands of Myanmar soldiers. In these instances, and so many more, society depends on those who speak out, who are prepared to argue that we need to improve, to be better. But, and perhaps this might sound a little contradictory, 
do still think that shifting your baselines can also be a very healthy thing. In so many ways, the two and a half years I spent in India was a wonderful learning experience, one with lifelong lessons and a sense of perspective I'm really grateful for. After completing my foreign correspondent posting in India, I'm spending some time in the US. It's a big change. I'm far, far more appreciative of many things, like fresh air and open space. They should never be taken for granted. Riding across the Golden Gate Bridge into the wonderful Marin Headlands, or jogging through San Francisco's Golden Gate Park with my girlfriend. That, for me, is pure joy. I grin at the other walkers, runners and riders as I gulp the morning air. Everybody's so polite, so respectful of others' personal space. And compared to India, there's so much of it. Oh, and it's really nice just drinking the water straight from the tap again. Having confronted the challenges of Delhi life, I think I'm also far more tolerant and patient than I used to be. Far more accepting of many things. Like American traffic or crowds. Eh, what are you going to do? Of course, I do expect that this rose-tinted glow will fade over time. Inevitably, I'll readapt. And that's healthy too, because I certainly don't want to remain oblivious to the issues around me. But wherever my new baseline for life back in the West settles, I do know now I won't be trying to stop anyone else from speaking up about their problems. was James Bennett. Since this story first aired, he's gotten married to the girlfriend you heard about in the story and has moved back to Australia. remember a little while ago, we asked for your input on a question about the pandemic. We wanted to know whether anything has gotten better since being moved outdoors. Turns out, not really. At least, we didn't get very many responses from you all. We did hear some interesting tidbits. One of the things that I found has been a silver lining in the outdoors and quote unquote has gotten better in the time of the pandemic is finding time and connections with friends outdoors that typically maybe wouldn't have happened outdoors. The outdoors is all around us. It doesn't have to be this great, amazing feat to be worth it, to find ourselves or to connect with others. But like I said, we didn't actually get that many responses from you. So maybe we're all sick of having to adapt. I think a lot of us have tried to cope with pandemic life by trying to highlight good things that have come out of it. But not everything has a happy ending. Not every hardship results in improvement. And maybe this is one of those cases. Despite the handful of silver linings, perhaps not much has actually improved by being moved outside. And that's okay, too. Thank you to everyone who did send in voice memos about this, including Laura Johnston and Tara Karina, whose voices you just heard.
A quick reminder that applications are open for our summer internship. You can get all the details at our website, outtherepodcast.com, and the deadline to apply is April 30th. A big thank you to Phil Tim, Doug Frick, Mike Lutters, Tara Jocelyn, and Deb and Vince Garcia for their financial contributions to Out There. If this podcast brightens your day at all, consider making a financial gift of your own. You can make a contribution in any amount. Every dollar helps. You can find us on Venmo at outthere-podcast, or you can head over to our website, outtherepodcast.com, to make a gift by credit card or to become a patron. Thank you so much. If you're new to Out There, check out the Best of Out There playlist. This is a collection of some of our favorite episodes of all time, and it's a great introduction to the range of stories we do on the show. You can find Best of Out There on Spotify and at our website, outtherepodcast.com. That's it for this episode. Our strategic advisor is Alex Eggerking. Our audience growth director is Sheba Joseph. Jessica Taylor is our advertising manager. Kara Schaefer is our print content coordinator. Our interns are Forrest Wood and Cecily Moran. Our ambassadors are Tiffany Duong, Ashley White, and Stacia Bennett. And our theme music was written by Jared Arnold. We'll see you in two weeks. Bye.